folks, Dr. Travis McMacken here. Welcome or welcome back, as the case may be. Thank you for choosing to spend a bit of your day with me. I hope that I can at least help you to think some interesting thoughts. I'll be back with you in a moment after the music ends. You have to talk to Ronnie about that one. I can't, <laughs> I can't grant you dispensations. <laughs> so this is our third week together, and we'll be doing two more uh, as we finish up the Scots Confession. I'm, I'm used to this in class. I just keep talking until people figure out it. <laughs> it's listening time. <laughs> at, a, at Boy Scouts, we raise two fingers until the boys notice, and then they're supposed to raise two fingers, and it catches on and goes around. Sometimes I use that in class when I really <laughs> am getting, getting fed up with them. Uh, so we'll have two more weeks uh, as we go through. We've been tackling five sections of the confession each week. Maybe you've noticed, and there's 25 sections overall. So we're going to hopefully stay on that pace. And last week, uh, for the history portion of our conversation together, I talked a bit about the Reformation background uh, and the late medieval uh, church and what it looked like, and we talked a little bit about Luther. So I'm going to start today by continuing that story a little bit and getting into Calvin and the Swiss Reformation and then the English Reformation a little bit. Um, so, Calvin and the Swiss Reformation. The Swiss Reformation uh, began with Ulrich Zwingli, uh, who was a really interesting character. He'd been a priest and then uh, became a popular preacher. He was trained as a humanist, uh, spending time at the University of Vienna, I believe, and that, to get his Master of Arts. And then he um, began getting involved in politics. And at the time, one of the main pieces of the Swiss economy was mercenaries. Lots and lots and lots of money poured into the Swiss Confederacy to purchase mercenaries because they had a reputation as being very formidable and hardy, uh, durable fighters. They fought with halberds, which are kind of like six, seven foot long pikes or spears with an ax on one end of them. Um, and they were kind of uh, one of the leading technologies and military formations for the early modern period. Uh, Germans copied them in different ways and you had uh, a huge mercenary economy. Zwingli went on a few expeditions with some mercenary troops from his region and got a very bad opinion of what life as a mercenary was doing to the young men of Switzerland. And so he became a public intellectual speaking out against the mercenary economy. And so he got a, to be very well known by that, from that. Some people liked him, and then there's the people who made lots of money off the mercenaries who did not like him. Uh, but he came to prominence, and through that he ended up getting a really high-profile preaching job in Zurich, which was the kind of capital city for the Swiss Confederacy. At the biggest church there in Zurich, the Grand Münster, the Great Minster, uh, he was the preacher. And once he got there, he started preaching through the book of Matthew, uh, verse by verse, which was a departure from uh, medieval ways of preaching. If you were in um, the late medieval context, especially if you were out in the countryside, you might hear one or two sermons a year. If you were in a city, especially a city with a uh, university, you could conceivably hear a lot more. But it was really hit and miss. And then the kind of sermons that you heard uh, tended to be thematic. So you might hear a sermon on one of the seven deadly sins, or you might hear a sermon on one of the cardinal virtues, or around Christmas time you might hear a sermon about 
uh, the Nativity. And during Easter, you might hear about one of the stations of the cross, right? But very thematic preaching. And, but Zwingli, trained as a humanist, said, no, it's about reading the texts. And so he would just preach through uh, as the text went along. And he did that and developed an emphasis much like um, Erasmus, which I mentioned last time, for being concerned about the moral teachings of the Gospels. So Zwingli was the one who kicked off the Reformation in Switzerland, Zurich eventually following a Reformation course, throwing out its bishop and those things. Um, and then Zwingli actually died in battle at the Second Battle of Capel, which was a kind of civil war within the Swiss Confederacy between those Catholic, we'd call them states, they're cantons, between the Catholic ones and the Protestant ones. And Zwingli died in action. Uh, and if you want later, I can give you the blow-by-blow. Blow. It actually would make a decent Hollywood death scene. Um, but he dies, and then he is succeeded there by Heinrich Bullinger, who continues on the work. And Bullinger was actually really influential in England a bit later on. And when we get to the English Reformation, you'll hear kind of how that went. But by the middle of the century, his sermons were being printed in English. Uh, and distributed among the clergy. And in fact, in England, a lot of the clergy often would just read them to their congregation. They weren't all that educated themselves to preach. And so Bullinger had a huge influence in early English uh, Protestantism. So he's one thread of the Swiss Reformation that's kind of going toward England and influencing the situation in the UK. John Calvin is another thread uh, of the Swiss Reformation probably a little uh, more familiar to us than Zwingli or Bollinger uh, as a name. Uh, this century, the last hundred years or so, he's had a lot more prominence in the United States than either Zwingli or Bollinger. Uh, but at the time, he was kind of the second generation guy, the upstart. Uh, he's kind of merging together what Luther had been doing and what Zwingli had been doing. And he's in the city of Geneva, which wasn't all that big or important uh, until he got there and then it became more important. But he was educated in the arts as well as Zwingli had been, but he also had his uh, terminal degree in law. So he was a trained lawyer before finally his father died and he was free to do what he wanted with his life. Uh, you know how it worked back in the day. Uh, his dad wanted, was the one who wanted him to be a lawyer. When his father died, he decided to dedicate himself to humanist study, and he needed to leave France, because France at that moment was not very friendly to people interested in reform. And at that time, Calvin wasn't uh, super identified with the Lutherans yet, but there's this group in France uh, who were trying to reform the church from within, and they started taking some heat, and Calvin was already moving out the other end of that group, and so he really needed to get out of Paris. So he leaves, and he's trying to go to Basel, which is where he wants to set up shop, find himself an ivory tower somewhere, and just stay there doing his research and writing. Well, he gets uh, detoured because Francis I, the King of France, and Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire are fighting a war, as they did from time to time, and the armies are in the way. So he has to go around the armies and ends up detouring through the city of Geneva, which was just this little, little city, a little backwater city, and he's staying the night there. Well, there's this guy na there named William Farrell. And Farrell uh, was preaching at the time, and Geneva had just recently kicked out its bishop and said that they were going to be a Protestant city. 
Now, Calvin was traveling under a pseudonym. He wasn't using his real name because a few months previously he had published the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was uh, a bestseller. And he wanted to keep a low profile traveling around all these Catholic armies for the obvious reasons. So he's there in Geneva under an assumed name, settling in for the night when he hears a banging on the door. And they go down, and it's Farrell. Somebody tipped him off that the guy who wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion was in town. Farrell goes to the door, basically hammers it down, and starts telling Calvin about how he's going to pray to God that God will curse him and never give him peace unless he stays in Geneva and helps Farrell set up the church there. Uh, Calvin, not the most uh, physically robust individual, very sensitive, uh, conscious. He feels very convicted by this and decides to stay. Uh, fast forward three years and he and Farrell are getting kicked out of Geneva. <laughs> but he ends up coming back and spending a couple decades there later on uh, solidifying the Reformation. So, uh, he wrote extensive commentaries on scripture, Calvin did. Uh, 22 volumes when they're published in English. And I highly recommend them to you. They're still worth reading today even though biblical scholarship has moved on. But he's such a careful reader of texts that he often understands um, the logic of the story, like what the story's trying to do better than modern commentators do with all their focus on the history and the grammar and things, which is also important. Uh, but he kind of understands the rhetoric of the story. And his question in his commentaries is never just what is it saying or what does it mean. He always asks, what's it trying to do? How is it trying to shape the reader? How is it trying to motivate the reader? And he can come up with some really interesting insights that way. So commentaries on scripture are one of the uh, main contributions that Calvin made. And a number of those circulated in English as well. Uh, and had a lot of influence. And he kind of understood those commentaries with, of Scripture as paired up with his Institutes of the Christian Religion, which he kept uh, revising. Now, has anybody here ever read the Institutes at all? Sometimes you cover find... To cover. cover to cover? <laughs> Sometimes in Presbyterian congregations you can find folks still who said, yeah, when I was growing up my parents had a copy on the shelf and we read it from time to time and things. Uh, it's been pretty influential in the history of our uh, denomination. Um, but he understood the Institutes as giving you the basic theological instruction you need in order to read Scripture well. So if you want to be able to read Scripture and understand what's going on, here's the companion volume. And so his commentaries and the Institutes kind of go together. And a lot of times in the Institutes, he'll reference sections of the Bible and Bible verses and some people have thought that he's kind of quote-unquote proof texting, saying what I'm saying here is based on this verse. But that's not exactly right. He's telling you to go look it up in his commentaries. And then where he discusses whatever he's saying further and talks about how it relates to different biblical passages. So they're meant to be read together. Uh, and that's a really interesting aspect, I think, of the work that Calvin produced, is how he's understanding uh, theological education, and scripture reading and how you have to bring these things together. So that's a part of what makes Calvin really interesting uh, to me at least. Now in terms of theology because we're gonna see Calvin was a big influence on Knox and therefore on the Scots uh, Reformation. 
Calvin had a lot to say about knowledge of God, as you might imagine. Uh, His basic position was that humanity is naturally religious. There's just something about being human that makes you want to worship something. Just have this natural religious inclination. And we should be able to identify God uh, based on looking around at things in the world. God created the world, therefore the world reflects God's greatness somehow. And if we could just look around and understand, we would know enough about God to worship God. Ideally. But, Calvin says, there's that problem of sin that gets into everything and messes things up. So that all we have now as a result of this religious impulse is, uh, and this is a phrase that he used, he says, human nature is a factory of idols. It's just like a conveyor belt pumping out idol after idol after idol, right? False gods to worship. We have this impulse to worship something and sin gets in the way so we don't worship the true God, we worship all of these false gods. So sin kind of distorts the knowledge that humanity should have of God. And then the way that God fixes that is by sending Jesus and providing the Bible. So through faith in Jesus and through access to Scripture and the Holy Spirit, using Scripture in your life and mind, uh, all of that uh, confusion caused by sin can be cleared up so that you can come to an at least approximately accurate understanding of the God you should be worshiping and what that worship should look like. So he uses the metaphor of eyeglasses. He says that the Bible is like a pair of eyeglasses. Without them, you can't really understand what's going on. Maybe like in that Bible uh, parable, you can see people, but they look kind of like trees. They're all blurry, right? You can't make it out. Uh, You can see things vaguely, maybe you can't understand what they mean. You put the glasses of scripture on and it all makes sense. And that was one of the key metaphors that he used. And when you do that, not only do you understand uh, better who God really is, but you understand yourself better. So the very first sentences of the Institutes of the Christian Religion talk about this relationship between knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And I'm paraphrasing uh, pretty closely, but he says, of all the wisdom that we possess, true and sound wisdom, the trickiest bit, but the most important bit, is knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And how they go together, it's really hard to explain, Calvin says. But they do. So better knowledge of God means better knowledge of yourself. You can't know yourself without proper knowledge of God, and these things are all entwined. And it's through Scripture that you get a clear vision of it all. So, uh, Calvin believes that the Bible is the only authority for Christian belief and practice, but he believes this in a little bit different way than Luther did, especially when it comes to the question of tradition. So, things that Christians have thought for and done for a long time, right? That's tradition. And for Luther, as long as a tradition did not contradict something in Scripture, it was fine. You could do it. You shouldn't make people do it, but you can. Now, Calvin takes the different approach that says, if you can't point to something in Scripture that says this is what you should think or this is what you should do, you shouldn't. 
So they're kind of mirror images of the same sort of point. But Calvin's being a lot stricter. He's using it as a lot more of a critical principle. So Luther and Lutheranism were able to retain a lot of traditions and symbols and practices that the Reformed did not. Okay? And this is the same logic that then gets picked up in England and becomes Puritanism. And I'll try to say something more about that as we keep going through the English Reformation and Knox, but it really comes from this point. It's not only stuff that doesn't contradict Scripture, you should only be worshiping God and believing things that you can specifically justify out of something in Scripture. So, should you have an organ in church for music? Nope, none in the Bible. Singing, sure. They're singing. Maybe even some symbols here and there, right? Yeah, lyres and flutes. Lyre with a Y, not with an I. <laughs> they're always there. <laughs> right, so you can do that, but you can't have organs, because that's not in the Bible, right? So, uh, and then also, you should not sing songs that are not in the Bible. So what did our ancestors in the faith do? They sang the Psalter. They sang the Psalms. And Calvin was actually one of the people who spearheaded that in terms of getting the Psalms uh, put together in a lyric way that would be singable, right? And translated in a lyric way. And Calvin also innovated in congregational singing. He's the one who had women start singing. So lots of innovation and things there, but he's like, in the Bible, the women are singing. They should be singing, but no organs, <laughs> right? And only the songs that are in the Bible. So that's kind of how that principle plays out. So we uh, will probably touch back in on that at some point. And then finally, uh, Calvin agreed basically with Luther about how salvation works in terms of you have to have faith. The Holy Spirit creates faith in you, so it's not something that you're doing for yourself. It's something that God's doing for you. Um, and Calvin really picks up the idea that as a result of this grace that God is giving you, uh, the Holy Spirit creating faith in you and so on and forgiving your sins, the result of that grace that is given should be gratitude, a response of gratitude. So the proper human response to grace given and received is to be grateful, right? And that gratefulness should take shape in how you live. Gratefulness should take shape in how you live. So in the Reformed tradition, our tradition, there's always been a great emphasis on ethics and living moral lives. And uh, sometimes that can be taken to an extreme as with what is called the practical syllogism. Uh, the practical syllogism says if you want to be sure that you're saved, look and see if you are successful. Syllogism, like a logical syllogism. Yep. It's basically just a, um, a sequence of reasoning and logic. So uh, what would be a good example? You have a major premise and a minor premise and a conclusion. So something like, um, all dogs have four legs, Spot is a dog, therefore Spot has four legs. Right? That's a very simple syllogism. So the practical syllogism says, uh, basically, you want to know whether or not you're saved, right? God blesses people who live 
uh, lives of gratitude and moral lives. Therefore, if you are blessed, you live a moral life, you're saved, right? So you look around, and if you're a decent, middle-class, successful person, you can be pretty confident in your salvation. But if you're not, right, you might start having doubts again. And that throws us back where we were with Luther to begin with. So sometimes these things can get really interesting feedback loops built in. But all of that's later. Calvin doesn't himself put forward that teaching. That comes later. But for him still, it's important that you live lives of gratitude and out of response to grace. And we'll see some of that in the confession when we get to it as well. So that's just real quick on the Swiss Reformation and Calvin as some framework. Uh, how about the English Reformation? We'll talk about that for a few minutes. Uh, we've all heard of Henry VIII. Uh, he got married to the widow next door, who'd been married seven times before, as the pop song goes. This is a slightly different Henry VIII, uh, monarch of England. <laughs> Maybe not right out of history. Um, how many of us watched like the most recent royal wedding or the Queen's Jubilee or the Olympics in England? Right? We've seen some of these things. Have you ever seen the monarch of England referred to as the defender of the faith among her many titles? Henry VIII is the one who earned that title. So he was the first one that the Pope bestowed it upon uh, prior to his break with Rome, <laughs> let's be clear. Uh, but he was a very devout person, and he actually wrote a book against Protestants early on in his reign, explaining why he thought they were wrong. And so the Pope called him Defender of the Faith. You get a new title, right? Um, he did, however, think that monarchs should have more control over the churches in their areas, and he looked around England and saw all of the money and resources tied up with church holdings. And he's like, I need those to fight wars against France. And so that was part of his motivation as well. But he also had an heir problem. right? And if you're a noble house or a king or anything in the Middle Ages or early modern period, you always want an heir and a spare. right? Somebody to take over for you and a backup in case something happens to that one. Uh, but poor Henry only had one daughter through his wife, Catherine of Aragon. And they'd been married for decades, and finally Henry said, well, clearly, I'm not going to get a son out of this. I need this marriage annulled so I can marry another woman and hopefully have a son, because clearly the problem's not me, it's her. Right? <laughs> Typical ki male king logic. Um, the Pope, however, would not issue an annulment primarily because he had to give Henry a special dispensation to marry Catherine in the first place, because for a couple weeks or so, Catherine had been married to Henry's older brother before he died, uh, and Henry became king. But that technically made Catherine Henry's sister, <laughs> as far as the church was concerned, and, you know, had to, had to work your way through that. So the Pope's like, I'm not going to know this, because if I do that, it makes it look like the first one was just, you know, worthless. And that makes me look bad. So Henry ends up working with uh, Thomas Cranmer, one of his uh, political assistants, and then also Thomas, or um, that was Thomas Cromwell, and then also Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to uh, split from Rome so that then uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury could issue the annulment and he could go ahead and marry Anne Boleyn. And if you know your history, that didn't turn out too well. There were three or four more after that <laughs> before Henry finally died. But as kind of a, a side effect of this kind of 
economic and political motivation, both Cromwell and Cranmer, and Thomas Cromwell was the great uncle of Oliver Cromwell, just by the way, if you're tracking names through Puritan Puritanism. Both Thomases involved were interested in reforming the church. Henry, not so much. He just wanted control of the church. But both Thomases wanted reform, and so they were able to start working on that uh, as a result of this break with Rome. Uh, for instance, Thomas Cranmer had issued the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which was a new way of doing spiritual life in now the Church of England. Um, and you still have that around in various editions today. So it wasn't as complete a reform as somebody like Zwingli or Bullinger would want because you're keeping a lot of traditions in place and you're keeping bishops and things like that, but it was the beginnings of a reform under Henry. Now, Henry dies, and his daughter from Catherine uh, becomes queen. Her name is Mary Tudor, uh, but eventually she would be known as Bloody Mary because as her uh, hold on power became more tenuous, which was the result of, honestly, her being a pretty bad queen in terms of just the politics of it and even foreign policy issues. Um, as her grip of po on power starts slipping, she decides that the way to solidify her power is to suppress religious difference because she was a committed Catholic. She was married to King Philip II of Spain, big Catholic monarch. And so they begin repressing Protestantism in England, and they end up killing lots and lots of people uh, to make that happen. And lots of other Protestants just up and leave, right? Because you don't want to end up getting burned at the stake or hung or anything like that. Now, by the time uh, that Mary uh, is out of the scene, you get Queen Elizabeth coming back in. And I'm trying to remember who Elizabeth's mom was. Was it Boleyn? I am totally blanking of whether it was her or the next woman that Henry married. <laughs> I think it was the next one, maybe. Anyway, uh, you also had this period of Edward, King Edward, Henry's only son by like his fourth wife, third or fourth wife, was a boy at the time that his father died. And so there was a protectorate in place, and more reformation happened then. And there's actually a letter or two that we have from Calvin to the Lord Protector uh, in that period, and they were circulating Bullinger stuff in that period, and then Mary comes in and rolls back that. Then you get Elizabeth, who tries to create a via media, which is a middle way between the really um, strict Protestants and then the really strict Catholics, right? It's like, let's find somewhere in the middle. And so it's also called an Elizabethan settlement. Uh, so she was Protestant, but she wanted to put together a church for the country that was going to keep a number of the traditions that people on the Catholic side were very much committed to, but also make a number of the changes that people on the Protestant side were committed to. So hopefully most folks would at least be able to get along, and we wouldn't have to kill a bunch of people anymore. Elizabeth did end up killing a bunch of people. Uh, but not for explicitly religious reasons. I mean, you can't help it if you're a king or a queen in this time period. There are people who need to be put to death for the stability of your reign. But Elizabeth was always very careful to execute people for treason, not for religious reasons, <laughs> officially, right? So that's a big propaganda difference, if you think about it, for how you're able to represent yourself. So that brought some stability back 
uh, to England. Now, a lot of those Protestants who left during Bloody Mary's reign ended up going to Geneva and hanging out there so that there was a church in Geneva of English people in exile, a few hundred of them. And John Knox was actually one of them and one of the co-pastors of that congregation in Geneva. And this is while well, Calvin's still at Geneva, so they're all there learning things from Calvin. And remember that really strict way of reading what you should and shouldn't believe and do in church? Has to be straight out of the Bible. They all pick that up, right? They get taught it in Geneva. And then when Elizabeth comes to power and Bloody Mary's gone, a bunch of them go back so that while Elizabeth is trying to carve out a middle way that keeps everybody, you know, at least pacified, now you've got this influx of radical Protestants from Geneva saying, no, 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 we need more reform, more reform, more reform. The church is not pure enough. We need to purify it. And that's where Puritan comes from, because you should only have those things that are pure, right, in your forms of worship and so on. So, in many ways, we can, I'll say this probably again next week, Knox can be seen as one of the first real Puritans, because he takes this back with him to Scotland and the work that he's doing there. And of course, we have Puritans coming over here, and now we're into beginnings of Christianity in the United States, but that's kind of the line of influence that travels from Geneva through England and off to our country. So all that is the history portion, and we have come in just about on time for the history portion, so we can move on and talk a bit about the Book of Confessions. And I was telling Carolyn as we were getting ready to start, my Book of Confessions is now falling apart. I have been reading it too much. Chapter 11, The Ascension. This is actually um, a fairly distinguishing feature of Scottish theology, is the emphasis that they put on what's called the session of Christ. So, of course, we all have a session in our church, right? It's all the elders. And the session's job is to uh, supervise the operational operations and spiritual life of the church. But what the uh, Scots Confession is talking about here in terms of the session of Christ is when Christ ascends and goes back up to heaven and then uh, sits at God's right hand and functions as a mediator between Christians and God and is ruling the world and all of these kinds of things. And it's a really uh, highly developed emphasis in Scottish theology to talk about how Christ continues in that ministry even today, and that's a main part of what it is that Jesus does for Christians. So we see in here uh, a few lines in that in our name and for our comfort he has received all power in heaven and earth, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, having received his kingdom the only advocate and mediator for us. So this idea that Jesus is this government official, right? Uh, the right hand of the king, so to speak, who's always concerned for your welfare. And the only person that you need to worry about uh, in terms of governing over your life, right? And so you go into the next line, which glory, honor, and prerogative he alone amongst the brethren shall possess till all his enemies are made his footstool. 
So, in other words, Jesus is there interceding for you and prepared to listen and help, right? Therefore, you don't need to be concerned with anybody else, right, that you might want to ask for help or to have listened to you. So this is a way of saying no interceding to saints, right? Or Mary. None of these people are going to help you. It's Jesus who is going to help you. Uh, why pray to second-rate folks when you can pray to the person who's really got the power, right? And it's actually straight out of Calvin's Institutes, the ar argument he makes about prayer to saints. Like, why would you bother with them when you can go straight to the source, right? But this is the idea of the session. Christ at the right hand of the Father, governing all, interceding for Christians, uh, right there where it counts. As we keep going on, we hear about the last judgment when Christ is going to return. We hear that it's going to be a time of refreshing and restitution of all things, so that those who have suffered oppression and things and uh, been done wrong all through life, all of this is going to be made right. There's going to be blessed immortality given as the inheritance to those who love and serve God. And all of this is a, ve a very apocalyptic uh, way of thinking. Apocalyptic thinking says there's going to be a dramatic break, right, with how the world is now and how the world will be then. It's not just going to grow from one phase to another organically or naturally or developmentally. There's going to be a decisive break. And an old thing is going to stop and a new thing is going to start. And this is how a lot of the New Testament gets written. So, for instance, if you ever read Matthew 13, it's called uh, a mini-apocalypse, where you hear about, you know, you should be worried if you're out in the fields when this is going to happen, or better, better hope you're not pregnant, right? Because this, this is going to, the world's going to go crazy and a whole new thing's going to start, right? So we get some of that held over here in the Scots Confession. So believers get, quote-unquote, blessed immortality, while all those who have done them wrong... Uh, including people who are just stubborn, right? The stubborn, disobedient, cruel perse persecutors. Uh, let's not forget about filthy persons, so personal hygiene is important. Idolaters, unbelieving, all of these shall be cast into the dungeon of outer darkness, where their worm shall not die, nor their fire be quenched. So, uh, in keeping with much Christianity of the time, hell is imagined here as something like an eternal torture chamber. So all through, we've seen God conceived of as a king, right? We've seen this language of Jesus at the right hand of God, just like you have king's ministers at the right hand of the king. And so just like that imagery, uh, you've got the idea that just like a king has dungeons, God has dungeons, and the unbelievers are going to get thrown into the dungeons and they're never going to come out. And um, this is interesting because we'll hear Knox actually spent time in a prison galley. Right? And a number of these folks had friends or relatives uh, who were caught up in Mary Tudor's persecutions. Right? So all of this is really evocative imagery that hits home in a personal way with them. Uh, this idea that God as a king has dungeons and everybody who threw you into dungeons is going to get thrown into dungeons, right? And they're never coming out. 
Meanwhile, you get blessed immortality. You get to hang up there in the courtroom with God and Jesus while the, the other folks are down in the dungeons. Right? So, uh, all this sounds great if you're one of God's kids. Uh, but it doesn't sound so great if you're not. And again, that raises the whole question again of how do you make sure you're on the right side? Right. Notice also that it's talking about knowledge of this judgment, this coming judgment, is not only a bridle by which our carnal lusts are restrained, right? Being worried about it keeps you from sinning, right? You're scared of getting thrown in the dungeon, so you behave yourself. And it's also a comfort that neither the threatening of worldly princes nor the fear of present danger or of temporal death may move us to renounce and forsake that blessed society which we, the members, have with our head and only mediator, Jesus Christ. In other words, who cares if they throw you in the dungeon here? You're going to get blessed immortality, right? So fly straight and don't worry if you get in trouble for God's sake. Um, now, the language is a little ambiguous as it goes on because it talks about this inestimable comfort. I'm trying to find the line where it says inestimable comfort. I have it quoted in my notes. Right where? <laughs> Two thirds of the way down? It starts with my we found it. Thank you. Inestimable comfort. Now, is it a comfort to Christians to know that um, they won't be in eternal dungeons, or is it a comfort to Christians to know that everybody else who does them wrong will be in eternal dungeons? The grammar is ambiguous, <laughs> right? But taking pleasure or comfort in other people's eternal torture seems a bit off. <laughs> so let's go ahead and read it as charitably as we can. And all of this here in terms of um, the blessed immortality, the bridle, the comfort, all of that plays into that whole practical syllogism question. How do you know which side you're on? Uh, again, you have to look at what's happening to you in this world. Are you being blessed? Are you not being blessed? Are you being persecuted for your faith? Right? Uh, and that's kind of the, the physical signs or the, the temporal signs that you are on one side or the other. Okay, that's chapter 11, more or less. Chapter 12, Faith in the Holy Ghost. The main point here, and this is something that um, Calvin really emphasizes, is that faith comes from the Holy Spirit and not from any human abilities. So you see it says not, uh, does not proceed from flesh and blood, that is to say from natural powers within us, but from the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, whom we confess to be God. So faith and the assurance of faith that you are in fact on the right side, that's something that only God can give you and God does in the mode of the Holy Spirit provide that to you. And we see, as we move through here, metaphors of death and blindness. So if we go to the top of the next page, it says, For by nature we are so dead, blind, and perverse. 
that we have to be hit over the head with the two by four of the Holy Spirit. Right? Paraphrasing. But dead and blind, right? It's, uh, how many of us have seen the movie The Princess Bride? It's a very funny movie, and there's a line in there about being dead is different from being mostly dead, right? Um, it's not just a, a kind of sickness that they're talking about here with sin. It's full-on incapacity, right? People who are dead can't do anything. People who are blind can't see at all, right? So there's not a little bit there that you can do your best with and then move forward. As in the medieval theology we talked about last week, facere quod in se est, right? Do what is within you. Do your best. There's nothing there to do. There's no best to build on, right? Dead and blind. Notice also it says by nature. I flagged this when we were talking about um, chapter 3, the way the Scots Confession uses nature can be a little ambiguous. Um, it does not mean the way that God created its nature after sin happens, right? So it's not saying that God creates human beings to be dead, blind, and perverse. It's saying that because human beings sinned, we're dead, blind, and perverse, right? It's just important to keep that in mind so we don't think that when it's saying natural, that's meant to be the original condition. Right, right out of the box, right out of the packaging. Dead, blind, and perverse. So because of the death, the blindness, and the perversity, the Holy Spirit has to get involved. God himself has to get involved to create faith. And the Scots Confession here ties this back in to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now remember at the beginning I said they're just kind of going through the paces of the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? hitting all the official notes so that they're not going to get into any arguments about the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, they're kind of back to it here, but now they're making use of the doctrine of the Trinity to do other theological work. And what they end up doing here is explaining why we have a doctrine of the Trinity to begin with. So notice here, And so, as we confess that God the Father created us when we were not, and his Son, our Lord Jesus, redeemed us when we were enemies to him. So also do we confess that the Holy Ghost does sanctify and regenerate us without respect to anything we do before or after regeneration. The Father creates, the Son redeems, the Spirit sanctifies and regenerates. All of this is stuff only God can do. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit must all be God. Right? This is exactly the logic that Basil the Great of Caesarea in the end of the 4th century used to argue that the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father and the Son. So the Scots Confession bringing that logic in here to explain to us how regeneration works. So just like God the Father creates, just like God the Son redeems, God the Holy Spirit regenerates. It's this combined work of the Trinity there. And that's necessary because by ourselves we are not capable of thinking one good thought. Now I flag this because in this, just like we need to be clear on what they mean by nature as we're going through, uh, what they mean by the word good changes depending on how they're using it. 
Um, again, remember these guys are practical or working theologians. They're not the guys sitting up in the ivory tower making super careful distinctions and being super consistent with language. What they mean here when they say good is something like perfect. Okay? Not capable of thinking one perfect thought, right? One good thought that is not somehow tarnished by sin. Not that there's no goodness whatsoever in our thoughts, but there's none that is just unqualified good, right? Not capable of that, because that's what's necessary if we were to save ourselves or to not need saving. But because we can't do that, you need the Holy Spirit, right? To do this regenerating. And that gets us into the next chapter, chapter 13, which is on good works. Here, good is something relative, right? Now they're using it not as perfect, but as relatively good, right? Not evil, right? Better or worse. So the cause of good works, we confess, is not our free will, but the spirit of the Lord Jesus, we're assuming that something called, quote-unquote, good works happens, right? But they've just told us that perfection doesn't, either before or after regeneration. So whatever we mean by, quote-unquote, good works, it's not perfection. But it's also not sinning, right? It's some other kind of category that happens when the Holy Spirit gets involved, when Jesus gets involved in one's life, so that one can obey to some extent, even if not perfectly. That's what we're talking about here in, good of, in terms of good works. So when a Christian does something that approximates true goodness, even if not perfectly good, the credit for that has to be given to the Holy Spirit, not to the individual. Because the Spirit is the one pushing you in the right direction. So this is very reminiscent of Paul in Galatians 2.20 crucified with Christ, so I don't live. The life I now live is Jesus living in me. Right? So they're drawing on that. For we most boldly affirm that it is blasphemy to say that Christ abides in the hearts of whom, uh, in the hearts of those in whom there is no spirit of sanctification. Jesus and the Holy Spirit go together. Just like the members of the Trinity all go together, Jesus and the Holy Spirit go together, and you can't have one without the other. Right? So, uh, if there is no response of gratitude where one tries to live out this new kind of life, then you have to wonder if there's any grace there. Right? If Jesus is there forgiving, the Holy Spirit's also there sanctifying. And you ought to be able to see at least some attempts. Right? Calvin, uh, when he talks about sanctification, says, all you need to be able to do is look back over the past week and see that you tried to be a little bit better. Right? And you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. So if there is no spirit of sanctification there, if there is no work toward improvement, toward relatively more goodness, then you have to wonder if Jesus is there as well. And when all of this happens, when the Holy Spirit does regenerate and renew the Christian, what happens? The Christian begins to hate what before he loved and to love what he hated before. So this is standing very much in the vein of Augustine's theology. St. Augustine of Hippo from the 4th century 
uh, said that the problem with sin is that it gets our, our love all twisted up and disordered, right? You're supposed to love things in a certain order. God, neighbor, and so on down the line, right? Goodness, justice, and so on. And sin messes all that up. So you love things more than they should be or less than they should be. What they're saying here is when regeneration happens, when the Holy Spirit gets involved, it starts putting those loves back in the right order so that the stuff you used to love, you hate, and the stuff you used to hate, you love. And then what happens? Thence comes that continual battle which is between the flesh and the spirit of God's children. We have all of these instincts built into what it means for us to live in a sinful world, to love things wrongly. And then you've got the Holy Spirit working to try to make it so we love things rightly. And we're caught constantly in the crossfire. So that uh, one sign when you're thinking from the basis of the Scots Confession, of whether or not somebody is in fact a true Christian, is whether their life gets spiritually harder. Because as it goes on further, other men do not share this conflict since they do not have God's spirit, but they readily follow and obey sin and feel no regrets. Right? If the Holy Spirit isn't at work in you, you're just perfectly fine. Right? You don't have this kind of spiritual crisis and battle going on. That's only for people who have the Holy Spirit. So again, if you need assurances, well, uh, if you feel that battle raging within you, if the question even arises for you that you need an assurance, well, there's your assurance, right? Because none of that would bother you if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit being there. But it also means that the Christian life is one of conflict within oneself. Right? Chapter 14. We're going to make it. We're going to. Here we're continuing the discussion of what counts as good works. Chapter 13 looks at it kind of from the human side, relatively better. Now we're looking at it kind of from God's side. What really counts as good, right? And so you have in the first line this reference to God's holy law. That's the standard. In order for a work to be good, it has to get up to the standard of God's holy law. And then you get that kind of broken into two categories, which is basically love of God and love of neighbor, obedience to God and service of neighbor. Uh, this is the two different tables of the Ten Commandments. This is Jesus' comment about, uh, you know, in response to which is the greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, right? It's kind of thematizing that. Um, look at all the stuff in here about honoring princes and rulers and superior powers and obeying their orders and so on, right? But always with the caveat that if they are not contrary to the commands of God. And what are the commands of God for political authorities? To save the lives of the innocent, to repress tyranny, defend the oppressed, and so on. Right? So, if your temporal authorities, your princes, your rulers, your magistrates, are doing things more or less the way God wants, you need to obey and support them. If not, you don't. And this is something that Knox really theorized. Calvin really until Knox started arguing with him, was very hesitant to admit anything like revolution. 
as a legitimate option. But Knox is like, well, you're not actually revolting against an authorized, a, a true authority if that authority isn't doing their job, right? That's kind of how he thought through it. And so this all in our own country was an important intellectual and theological groundwork for how we came to exist, right? Taxation without representation was felt to be tyranny, right? So that authority is illegitimate and it's now a possibility for a Christian to disobey and overthrow that authority. Maybe even a duty for a Christian to do that, right? So Knox theorizes that and it comes out in the confession here. But good works, by the time we get through all of this, are those alone which are done in faith and at the command of God. So when you live your life in, a, in the way that God commands, you're doing good works. But notice also in religious matters. You have to do those things which have no other warrant or justification than, uh, let's see, nope, these are evil works. <laughs> evil works have no other warrant than the invention and opinion of man. In other words, tradition. Evil aspects of religious worship are things where you can't point to them in the Bible. So just like we were talking about, the Puritan impulse here, coming out in the confession. And then in chapter 15, all of this stuff, following God's law when perfectly done, is, gives life and brings you eternal felicity, salvation, and heaven. But our nature, again, after sin, is so corrupt and weak and imperfect that we are never able to perfectly fulfill them. So even when we're performing good works, they're only relatively good. Right? But, we drop to the middle of the page, God the Father beholds us in the body of his Son, Christ Jesus, so that God accepts our imperfect obedience as if it were perfect. So even though it's only relatively good, objectively considered, God looks at us through Jesus and says, nope, actually, it's good. It's perfect. Because Jesus makes up the difference. So again, this is the importance of Jesus being at the right hand of the Father. Not only does Jesus forgive you for past sins, but even when you try to do good works, Jesus is making up the difference between the still imperfect works that we perform and God's righteousness, right? God's perfection. Consequently, there can be no works of supererogation. Supererogation is the late medieval theological idea that um, if you're a saint or something, you can serve God more than you technically are required to. Therefore, you generate some bonus points and you can share that with other people. Right? They're saying, no, humans are always imperfect and Jesus is always making up the gap. And we just have time to get our bulletins and head into service. So. <laughs> but we're still on track. So thank you all, and I will see you next week. You've been listening to the McCracken Cast. I am, and hopefully will remain, Dr. Travis McMacken. I do all the production work myself, in case you couldn't tell. But the music is by my son, Connor. Until next time, think interesting thoughts. Thank you.